Welcome to Christ in Prophecy. I'm Nathan Jones. And I'm Tim Moore. Last week we jumped into our series focusing on Jesus in the Old Testament where you would expect in the beginning. God revealed the details of His creative act because He wanted us to understand where we came from and the reason mankind is a little lower than the angels. This week we will build on that foundation by grappling with the tragedy that impacted every descendant of Adam and Eve, the fall. One of the common complaints against God is the presence of evil in the world. Another is human suffering. How, scoffers ask, could a supposedly loving God allow His creatures to suffer and tolerate an injustice and fail to put a stop to evil itself? Genesis 3 and 4 answers that question. I sat down with Dr. Adam Greenway, the president of the Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and a good friend, to discuss those questions and these two key chapters in God's narrative of human history. Well, I've come today to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary to spend time with my dear friend, Dr. Adam Greenway, who serves as the president. Adam, thank you very much for being on this episode of Christ in Prophecy and welcoming me to your beautiful campus. I'm glad to be here. Tim, it's great to have you here on our campus at Southwestern Seminary. It's a delight to be with you and with your audience today. Well, you know, we have served many different ways, but we first crossed paths in Kentucky, and many of our viewers, perhaps even some of your folks here at Southwestern, may not know that you have a unique skill in that you are an expert parliamentarian. As a matter of fact, at one time you offered your services to the Kentucky General Assembly, and they would have been wise to have taken you up on that offer. Well, we all need uh, a hobby, and I guess my hobby has been uh, parliamentary procedure in addition to theology and, uh, and ministry. We've had a chance to uh, connect over that and serve in context uh, together. And uh, But I will uh, be very clear to affirm that I do place the, uh, the Bible on a higher level of authority than Robert's Rules of Order. Uh, here, here. I would agree with that. Absolutely. Well, we've been blessed to serve in various ministry roles together, but as you were called here to lead Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, I look forward to serving alongside one another close here in Texas, and indeed we do. And then I envision this series that we're launching on Christ in the Old Testament. And as I did so, I realized that the fall of man as described in Genesis chapter 3 is so very foundational, not only to everything that follows in Scripture, but really to our understanding of the human condition. And then I felt compelled, shall we say, to invite you to participate in this specific program. And I would like you to explain how God's own sense of humor is demonstrated in this non-coincidental choice. Well, some years ago, uh, I did quite a bit of study on the issues related to uh, Genesis 3 and the fall and how those things affect what we do uh, today. And it's one of those areas of where uh, if we don't get the story of our origins right, then we really can't understand what is happening in our world today correctly. Uh, a lot of people in our world think that uh, we're here because of uh, blind evolutionary processes, that everything is just random or chance. Uh, that's simply not the case. Uh, the Bible makes clear 
that uh, God created everything that is, including you and me, including the very uh, studio we are in recording this uh, episode, including all that we see uh, around us. And he called it good, uh, beginning with the uh, creation of the world and culminating in the creation of, uh, of humankind. The first man, appropriately named Adam, the first woman <laughs> yeah. named, uh, named Eve, and the first dwelling place, the Garden of Eden. But in Genesis 3, everything changed. And in that moment, uh, the course of history changed in such a way that if we fail to understand what really happened in the fall, in that original temptation, uh, we really don't understand kind of what is happening in our world today and what is going to be happening in that which is yet to come. Well, you, you speak so beautifully, and obviously I didn't even think about this. We are referring to the first Adam. We point to the, the Adam that uh, replaced him, the, the completion in Jesus Christ. But you, being another Adam, have tremendous insight. And obviously this was your dissertation topic about the fall of man. So why is it so fundamental and foundational to our understanding of everything that follows? Well, in Genesis account, uh, God created the first man, Adam, the first woman, Eve, placed them in that first dwelling place, the Garden of Eden, and interestingly enough, only gave them one prohibition. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the day that you do that you will surely die. Genesis 3, along comes the serpent, the snake in the grass, that Revelation 12 reminds us was none other than Satan himself, the devil yeah. himself. And he comes with a very interesting satanic strategy. He comes to the woman and says, uh, kind of what are the ground rules here? And she says, well, God said that uh, we can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We can't even touch the tree. Now, God didn't say that. She added that. And the serpent immediately says, no, 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 no. no. God's holding back on you. He knows if you eat of that fruit, you'll be like God knowing. So, Consider for a moment, Tim, the original strategy of the evil one is two-pronged. It is to try to convince the woman, and by extension the man who we know is there because sure. of what happened shortly, to question or to doubt or to deny the Word of God, yes. hath God really said. Did He really say this? Did He really say this? <clears throat> and the goodness of God. God's holding back on you. He doesn't want you to have certain things. He doesn't really have your best interest at heart. May I submit looking ahead, that is the exact same satanic strategy that has been far too effective down through the tunnel of time. It sure is. And Satan also went on to say, you can be like God. Correct. In other words, he's holding back, but you can aspire and you can attain a God-like uh, level of awareness, consciousness, and be like God. And that's been mankind's humanist endeavor throughout history. That's right. Don't listen to God. Listen to me. Listen to my voice. And in that moment, they have a choice to listen to God's Word or to listen to other voices. And sadly, tragically, they made the wrong choice. Well, certainly. And by making that choice, sin was introduced to the world and then there was a curse placed upon the world. But yet, even in the midst of that curse, what kind of prophetic foreshadowing did God weave into His pronouncement of curses on the earth, on mankind, that points us forward to Jesus appearing 2,000 years ago? Even in that moment when Adam and Eve sinned and they fell from their original state of holiness and innocence, sin was ushered in, changed everything. Immediately you see the effects of that where uh, when God comes to meet with them as was the habit of that time, they're hiding. They're trying to conceal. They're trying to withdraw. Notice sin separates. Yes. I mean in that moment 
when uh, they realized that they were uh, sans attire, uh, <laughs> as the uh, uh, scripture uh, yeah, attests. Yeah, naked we'd call it here in Texas. Uh, right? That we would call it yeah. that in Texas, that's right. What do they not do? They don't cry out to God in repentance, asking God for mercy and forgiveness because they realize they have sinned and violated God's word. They try to withdraw, to hide, and to conceal. And when God comes and finds them, because God is the ultimate seeker, what is the response? We were hiding because we were naked. Well, who told you you were naked? And Adam says, well, that woman you gave to me, yeah. by the way, that woman, Genesis 1 and 2, who was taken from Adam, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, to be that perfect complement, that perfect completion, because man was inadequate in and of himself. He was lonely. He was incomplete. All of a sudden now becomes his first object of blame. And yet, even in that moment, God in His infinite mercy, even as He is pronouncing judgment upon them and their sin, says, there will be one who will come, who even though the serpent will strike his heel, he will crush the head of the serpent. Yes, He will. And uh, down through the tunnel of time, the Old Testament prophets of God prophesied about that one for hundreds of years. And in the fullness of time, in the right moment, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, came the one who would indeed crush the head of the serpent. Amen. And ironically, it was at a moment in time when the world was in a very dark period. There seemed to be no hope in Israel. They were under oppression. And yet that was the appointed time determined by God the Father. And it was the perfect time. You know, today, Adam, some people look around the world and scoff at the very idea of God. They say, if there is a loving, omnipotent God, then how can you explain the existence of evil in the world? And of course, I would counter that if there were no loving, omnipotent God, we couldn't explain the presence of good in the world. And of course, if there is no God, by what external standard do people even have a right to call something good or evil in the first place? How would you respond? Well, I think you're exactly right. The moment that we begin using terms like evil, we are automatically implying some transcendent standard of evaluation that makes no sense if there is not a transcendent being who is the ground of all that is right and good and just. Uh, and this is one of the interesting things, again, about what happens in our world today. There are many who, though they reject the gospel and they reject biblical morality and ethics and teaching, they still want to use that very morality and ethics to try to discredit Christianity. Um, and over the course of time, there have been all kinds of, uh, of critics out there. I've heard people who have said uh, nonsensical things like, uh, Christianity is responsible for more evils than all other institutions combined. And when you start trying to press in on that, they'll start labeling things like uh, the Holocaust, which of course was not a Christian act. Adolf Hitler was a follower of German paganism. In fact, did you know that more people died in atheistic wars in the 20th century than perhaps all of human history? Of Adolf Hitler killed 16 million people, including 6 million Jews. Joseph Stalin killed tens of millions more than that. But the real winner of that period was Mao Zedong. Yes. Through the Cultural Revolution, killed something like 70 million Chinese people and others for a godless ideology. Um, it's amazing to me that people even intrinsically know that's not just wrong, that's evil. It certainly is. And, because and there is that divine sense within that knows something is desperately wrong here. 
Uh, there is that kind of God-shaped size hole, one philosopher said, that people long to fill, and they fill it with all of the wrong things that ultimately cannot satisfy, that only Jesus the Messiah can. But even in Romans 1, Paul talks about how there is no excuse. In other words, we know enough, and it is our consciences within us, until they become hardened and cold, that recognize that there is evil, and there is a, a source of that, but there's also <clears throat> God's uh, grace that extends to the whole world, uh, even before knowing Christ, it's just His general grace. One of the things that is evident even in chapter 3 of Genesis is that God's immediate provision to cover man's shame and recognized nakedness involved the sacrifice mm -hmm. of an innocent animal. As a matter of fact, blood was shed, a life was forfeit. Mm -hmm. And tellingly, who did the killing? In other words, who provided that particular cover for sin, which was only temporary? God Himself. God Himself was the one who uh, not just pronounced judgment upon sin, but in that moment provided atonement for sin. Mm. Now, we know, of course, that uh, the blood of bulls and goats, as the writer of Hebrews says, ultimately cannot take away sin. It merely foreshadowed what would come when Jesus the Christ, who is not only God's provision, but was Himself the atoning sacrifice. Yes. Uh, Paul used the term the propitiation uh, for our sins. Uh, uh, the language that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is so majestic here, that He who knew no sin became sin for us. Uh, that's why you see in the uh, powerful scene there the night before the crucifixion on that original Monday Thursday where mm -hmm. Jesus looks into that bitter cup and He sees your sin and my sin and the sin of the world that He will bear as our sacrifice and our substitute. And He cries out before God, if there be any other way, mm -hmm. let this cup pass from me. But in the ultimate act of submission, nevertheless He prays, not my will but Thine be done. From yes. the beginning of time when Adam and Eve fell, God did not leave them and leave humanity to our own devices from the beginning. He had a plan and a purpose to provide atonement for His people. And even before the foundation of the earth, as we'll touch on, you know, regardless of the sufferings that we're subject to in this life, and let's face it, in, in America, as bad as things are getting, it just is a, a pale comparison to other parts of the world, even today, where brothers and sisters in Christ are truly suffering and being persecuted. But Paul said also, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of man. He went on to say, For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. In other words, Paul connects the curse hanging over the world with the culmination of human history when Christ will come again and set all things right and lift that curse forevermore. Indeed, uh, Christ is the answer to the problem of humanity's sin and separation and alienation from God. Which of course is what separates Christianity from every other religion, every other belief system, every other plan of salvation or pathway to heaven. They all talk about what man, what woman, what humanity has to do to somehow find or to make amends or to satisfy the wrath of God or a higher power or a deity. Only Christianity says God Himself makes the way. 
It is not what we do in order to achieve or to obtain a righteous or a right standing before God. It is all about what God has done for us in Christ. Yes. The writer of Hebrews exalts Jesus, who he calls the mediator of a new covenant, and re references his sprinkled blood, which speaks much better than the blood of Abel, crying out for us. And if Abel's blood cried out the outrage and injustice of sin and of murder, how much more does the shed blood of Christ cry out the love and the grace of God that covers our sin, all of our sins, if we put our trust in Him? Christ is the one who, uh, Son of God, God the Son, left the glory of heaven to come for a singular assignment, that He would bear the weight of your sin and my sin, mm. the weight of the sin of the world. The crystal Christ became accursed for us, and the death that I should have died, the price that I should have paid, the burden that I should have borne, He took that from me and bore it in Himself in such a way that Paul says, so that I might bear and receive and be credited with the very righteousness of Christ. See, that's the marvelous thing about the gospel is not just that Christ takes away our sin, but He imputes or He credits or He gives to us His righteousness. Yes. So I am no longer merely just a sinner, an old sinner saved by grace. I'm now declared to be a saint because of Christ. Not that there's anything intrinsically good within me, but because of what Christ has done and that in salvation I am united to Christ, His Spirit lives within me and it is working to reproduce His character and commission within me. So moving forward a few generations as we will in the weeks to come, even Abraham models this formula that because he believed God, he trusted what God said, it was credited to him as righteousness. When we believe God and He says, I have provided Christ, He is the way, the truth, and life as Jesus Himself testified, when we believe that, and trust God for that provision of salvation, then He credits us with His righteousness. And we see with Abram, Abraham the example of that, both in terms of what is right and what falls short. So, we see what happens, of course, when God told him that he and his wife, Sarai, became Sarah, would have a child. Uh, he learns that at age 75, yeah. 86, no child's come along yet. And uh, Abraham decides, maybe I just need to help God yeah, out. Yeah, a little impatient. Maybe, maybe I need to, you know, kind of speed things up here because, you know, we're not getting any younger. And uh, Ishmael is born through the relationship between Abraham and Hagar, the handmaid. And that child does end up uh, becoming one through whom a great nation is born. But it was not the promise of God. It yes. was not the fulfillment of God's original intention and purpose with the child of promise. That would come, of course, 14 years later at 100 when Isaac was born. And yet even in that moment, so we see, of course, the challenge of obedience, the challenge of waiting for God's promise on His time and in His way to be fulfilled, the danger of trying to get ahead of God or to help God out. Mm -hmm. Then we see, of course, God calling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Yes. And we see fully surrendered obedience, literally even to the point of where as young Isaac is there looking at his dad saying, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, the Lord our God will provide. Another beautiful foreshadowing. And Abraham gives us a great exemplar because he, although we revere him tremendously, 
is just a man. That's right. And he had failings and shortcomings like all of us do, but he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Let's address another difficult question, Adam. Some people like to speculate, well, what if Adam and Eve had never sinned? Would we still be living in the Garden of Eden? <laughs> well, uh, it's interesting at times when people want to speculate about uh, counterfactuals and things that, you know, what if, you know, and oftentimes this comes up in my world in terms of the why questions. Uh, sure. Why does God not do something? Why does God do something? Uh, I usually point people to Deuteronomy 29, 29, where uh, the Lord says through the pen of Moses, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children that we may walk in them. Mm. So if you will, Tim, uh, God himself divides the entire universe of possible knowledge into two categories, hidden things and revealed things. The hidden things are the things that God has not chosen to reveal, which means we don't know. And we don't need to know Correct. He would have revealed them. That is correct. And you and I are incapable of prying into the secret counsels of God to get Him to reveal things He has not chosen to reveal. Very wisely put. Uh, so the revealed things are the things that He has given to us in order to help us be able to know Him and to walk in His ways. And I would submit... Uh, the real problem that we face is not that God has not given us enough revelation to be able to find Him and to follow His will and His words. Our problem is we are not really committed to the kind of surrendered obedience that says we want to come under the claims of Christ and to submit ourselves to the authority and sufficiency of Scripture and to really dive into what He has revealed that we can live out these teachings. Henry Morris, I was at the Institute for Creation Research last week, speaking of Revelation said, it's not as hard to understand, it's hard to believe. Mm -hmm. But if you believe it, you'll begin to understand it. Mm -hmm. And so often, if we will believe God, then the things He has revealed, we will understand. It is a step of belief that some are unwilling to take. And we go back and point to Abraham. Well, Adam, thank you very much for spending time with us today, for sharing your heart, your insights. How could people stay connected to Southwestern? And those who are interested in coming here to study, how could they uh, find out more information about Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary? Thanks again for having me, Tim, for the conversation. If you'd like to learn more about our work here at Southwestern Seminary, you can find us online, swbts.edu. And we're also available at Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at SWBTS or at Southwestern Seminary. Uh, quick Google search, you'll find uh, our institution. We would love to find ways to let you know more about what God is doing here and ways in which we can equip you for a lifetime of ministry that fulfills the Great Commission and glorifies God. Amen, amen. Adam, thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Tim. God, God bless. Throughout most of human history, people acknowledged the reality of evil and the nature of sin. Western societies created laws that generally reflected a Judeo-Christian worldview, imposing limits on human depravity even as they encouraged human freedom. That balance was referred to as ordered liberty. America was founded on just such principles, and while we have never been without blemish, our system was designed to encourage human flourishing by reflecting an appreciation of God's Word. Lately, however, the cultural and political elites in our society seem determined to reject God's laws and flaunt their wickedness. Not only has the broader civilization lost a concept of sin, it is seldom mentioned in most American pulpits. Mankind's rejection of God is age old. Adam and Eve hid from him in the garden. Cain rejected God's counsel and murdered his own brother. Even King David wandered away from his own good shepherd and engaged in adultery and murder. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. 
And yet, in modern history, there was at least a recognition that sin should be shunned, if not punished, through laws enacted to protect society. But today, our society has fully embraced the toleration and celebration of sin. Paul wrote about it in his letter to the Romans, listing a litany of sins committed by unbelievers who ought to have known better. He said, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, that they only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. How else to explain the LGBTQ plus movement? How else to understand our media's enthusiasm at reporting the same-sex marriage of Colorado's governor? How else to realize that the exponential increase in self-professing agnostics and atheists? Our society is sick, but doesn't even acknowledge the disease of sin. Wake up, America. When I was 18 years old, I underwent the most intense training experience of my 34-year Air Force career, survival, evasion, resistance, and escape training. Designed in response to the American experience in Vietnam, Siri exposed me to the physical and psychological challenges a downed airman would face in enemy territory or as a POW. That training was cited as invaluable by a close friend who was held as a POW in Iraq. One of my most distinctive memories of Siri occurred when the training was over. After living in the mountains of Colorado for days on end without food or showers, evading aggressor cadre, and resisting capture, I was dirtier than I'd ever been in my life. I returned to my dorm determined to take an hour-long shower and eat until I could eat no more. I took that hour-long shower and returned to my room only to realize that the clothing I'd removed stunk to high heaven. It was absolutely fit to be burned. But while I had been wearing it for days on end, I never smelled it or myself. I've often thought about my experience in Siri and the spiritual lesson it affords. When we are covered in sin, stinking to high heaven spiritually, we are so used to our filth that we cannot even recognize the stench. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, we begin to comprehend our own helpless status and other depravity. But when we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, only then can we understand how bad we stink. Sadly, if we do not stay committed to following Jesus, making Him Lord of our lives and obeying His commandments, not to secure our salvation, but to manifest His Lordship over us, we can slowly begin to put back on the filthy rags we lay aside when we become a new creature in Christ. Not only does that grieve the Holy Spirit, over time we can lose our sense of smell. We've all known professing Christians who leave a trail of stench in their wake, but they do not know that they stink. Brothers and sisters, hear me clearly. I am not suggesting that we are saved by our works. Far from it. What I am suggesting is that we daily submit to the testimony of the Holy Spirit and flee from the tug of our old sinful nature. As Scripture says, put on Jesus Christ and make no allowance for the flesh. I was so glad I could sit down with Dr. Adam Greenway. Did you catch the allusions to Jesus Christ in these two chapters of Genesis? When the Bible says God walked in the garden, we believe that was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ the manifest person of God. And when God provided coverings for Adam and Eve, He used the skin of an animal foreshadowing the fountain that we opened at Calvary. The blood of an innocent animal had to be shed in order for man's sin and shames to be covered even temporarily. And God pronounced a curse on the serpent, prophesying the great conflict where Satan would metaphorically strike Jesus' heel only for His head to be crushed by the Messiah. Did you find a key verse? Once again there are several that stand out to us. But Nathan and I landed on Genesis 3-9, where it is God who is seeking after man who is hiding in shame. 
Go to ChristInProphecy.org and we'll offer commentary on the other verses. And regarding our timeline, the Bible does not say how long Adam and Eve lived in the garden in sin-free bliss. But at some point after the creation they succumbed to Satan's deception and human sin entered the world. For that reason we also placed the fall somewhere around 6,000 years ago. Next week we will pick up speed in the book of Genesis. Read chapters 5 to 11 to be ready for another foundational truth of Scripture as we focus on judgment and wrath. Consider Jesus' role in that aspect of God's interaction with humanity and thank Him for delivering you from the wrath to come. If our deep dive into Bible prophecy focusing on Jesus in the Old Testament has sparked your hunger for more, consider ordering the basics of Bible prophecy. Just call the number on the screen or visit our online store. Until next week, I'm Nathan Jones. And I'm Tim Moore saying Godspeed. Christ in Prophecy is made possible through the faithful and generous support of viewers like you. Please consider making a donation to Lamb and Lion Ministries so that we can continue broadcasting the message of Jesus' soon return. Thank you and God bless you. Thank you.